Okay, so we're going to move on to a guy that could fix anything, and he's best known as Bob the Builder. On from 1998 to 2011, Bob the Builder is a British stop-motion animated children's television series created by Keith Chapman for Hit Entertainment and Hot Animation. In the original series, which aired from 98 to 2011, Bob appears in a stop-motion animated program as a building contractor specializing in masonry along with his colleague Wendy, various neighbors and friends, and their gang of anthropomorphized work vehicles and equipment. The show is broadcast in many countries, but originated from the United Kingdom, where Bob was voiced by English actor Neil Morrissey. The show later used CGI animation, starting with the spin-off series Ready, Steady, Build. British proprietors of Bob the Builder and Thomas the Tank Engine sold the Enterprise in 2011 to U.S. toy maker Mattel for $680 million. In each episode, Bob and his group help with renovations, construction, and repairs and with other projects as needed. The show emphasizes conflict resolution, cooperation, socialization, and various learning skills. Bob's catchphrase is, can we fix it? To which the other characters respond with, yes, we can. This phrase is also the title of the show's theme song, which was a million-selling number one hit in the UK. In October 2014, Bob the Builder was revamped by Mattel for a new series to be aired on Channel 5's Milkshake in 2015. Amongst the changes were a complete overhaul of the cast with Harry Potter actor Lee Ingleby replacing Neil Morrissey as the voice of Bob and Joanne Froggett and Blake Harrison was also confirmed as the voices of Wendy and Scoop respectively. The setting and appearance of the characters also changed, with Bob and his team moving to the bustling metropolis of Spring City. An American localization of the new series debuted on PBS Kids in November 2015. The changes have been criticized by fans of the original version. The original series returned to TV in the United States on Cubo on the 7th of October 2020, but with the original British-English dub instead of the dubbed American-English one. Voice actors who have contributed to the original British version include Neil Morrissey, Rob Rackstraw, Kate Harbour, Rupert Dagus, Colin McFarlane, Maria Darling, Emma Tate, Richard Bryars, June Whitfield, and Wayne Forrester. Celebrities who have provided voices for the series, usually for one-off specials, include John Motson, Sue Barker, Carrie Fox, Ulrika Johnson, Allison Stedman, Stephen Tompkinson, Elton John, Nottie Holder, and Chris Evans, Bobsville's resident rock star Lenny Lazenby. Bob the Builder was nominated in the BAFTA Preschool Animation category from 1999 to 2009 and won the Children's Animation category in 2003 for the special episode A Christmas to Remember. Of the show's success, Sarah Ball said, I think diggers and dumpers fascinate kids in the same way that they are drawn to dinosaurs. They both have a timeless appeal. 
The technique of stop motion is very tangible. The characters look like you can just pick them up and play with them. It's a safe, lovely, bright, colorful world, which is very appealing. Curtis Jobling did a fantastic job designing the show. It's very simple and stylized, but has such charm. That was said in an interview with Sarah Ball at Gurgle.com. Bob the Builder has been parodied by Robot Chicken in the episode More Blood, More Chocolate and by Comedy Inc. is Baji Builder. Bob has also been parodied on Cartoon Network's Mad on several occasions. In the episode Sup Mouse, D, Mouse MD, Bob is seen with a smashed thumb and asks, can we fix it? In another episode, Bob encounters the title character of Handy Manny, whom he tells to stop copying my show. A New Yorker cartoon shows a parent in a toy store asking for toys depicting Alex the Architect, supposedly a white-collar equivalent to Bob the Builder. Some have complained about technical errors and lack of proper safety practices in the program, especially the absence of protective eyewear. However, in later episodes, Bob is seen using safety glasses. So from business to community.com, there is five work lessons from Bob the Builder that Amanda Nelson uh, shared with us. So she says, as a new mom, I'm getting introduced to the vast, colorful world of children's television, ranging from nostalgic shows like Sesame Street to newer shows like Word World. Bob the Builder is about a construction worker fixing and building various projects around his claymation town. His construction machinery and equipment come alive and they all work together to achieve goals. The lessons Bob the Builder teaches about teamwork and collaboration goes above the head of my 18-month-old, but some of it resonates with me. It's a reminder of the importance of certain key aspects for a great work environment and attitude. 1. Be positive. No matter what task is handed to Bob, and some seem pretty unrealistic like building an amusement park, he takes it on with excitement. Consider how your outlook and attitude affects your productivity and the way you approach a new project. Can you build it? Yes, you can. 2. Be friendly. Bob's town is overly friendly. The pizza man lets the museum owner stay at his house when there's a flood at the art show. The dance teacher makes special hours to ensure Bob is ready for the big dance, and so on and so on. Be friendly and helpful everywhere you go. Even if the request is a bit out of our jurisdiction, it's okay to help out. When you're in a jam, the people you helped will help you. 3. Be honest. Sometimes projects take longer than anticipated or go over budget. By addressing the potential challenges up front and setting a precedence, it will be easier to have those harder conversations when situations go awry. Bob always explains to his clients that a project will require certain equipment, time, and resources. 4. Don't do it alone. Bob has a team of construction equipment as well as Wendy, his other construction worker, to get the job done. By working as a team and collaborating with all the necessary people and objects, the work gets done efficiently. Plus, working in a team with those you enjoy makes the project a lot more fun. And five, have fun. 
Bob focuses on solving problems and accomplishing tasks, but there's always a fun aspect to it. Maybe it's living in claymation or the fact that everything, including tractors, talk, but that atmosphere around Bob's work is always fun and positive because he's happy, hardworking, and with a group of people and machines he loves. Um, so obviously it's like... I felt like Bob the Builder was like a boy's show growing up. You know, when you're a kid, you label it like blue was a boy's color, pink is a girl's color. You know, just back then and growing up as a kid, it was normal for us to label things like that. I mean, nowadays you wouldn't dare do that, but... Yeah, so I always said, oh, Bob the Builder's a boy's show. I don't want to watch that. And so that's where I always was with that. But I think on a few occasions, you know, I I did have to watch Bob the Builder just because I couldn't change the channel and, you know, it was on. So I, I not to say I never watched it, but definitely wasn't something I would have chosen to watch and I know I was always so annoyed by the, can we fix it? Yes, you can. I mean, as a child and especially into adulthood, it's like, thank God I never really had to. I think my nephew was into Bob the Builder for a little, just a small, short amount of time. But thank God I never had to really, you know, sit around and witness that. I mean, it was bad enough when it was like, every single day with the Finding Nemo and Sesame Street. So thank God Bob the Builder wasn't one I had to deal with. Next up is a show. Um, a lot of the music um, in elementary school, our music teachers would show us videos like the Hairbrush song. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about Veggie Tales, of course, which aired from 1993 to 2015. Um, so I, I of course know the hairbrush song and there was also another song. Um, and maybe if I read about it, it'll come across me, but I cannot think of it offhand. Um, otherwise, other than seeing like a few movies or videotapes in school, I've never watched Veggie Tales, and you know, I learned quite a lot about it. Um, looking back and reading about it, I, I never knew what VeggieTales was truly like, what the true focus of it was. Um, so I really learned a lot about this show. Um, so it was quite interesting. Um, so VeggieTales is an American Christian computer-generated musical children's animation and media franchise created by Phil Vischer and Mike Naraki under Big Idea Entertainment. The series sees fruit and vegetable characters retelling Christian stories from the Bible with episodes presenting life lessons according to a biblical worldview. The franchise originated as a video series with episodes distributed primarily direct to home media, first in 1993 on VHS and later on DVD and Blu-ray through to 2015. The television series Veggie Tales on TV ran on NBC from 2006 to 2009 and two Netflix series debuted in 2014 and 2017. 
Two films were released, Jonah, a VeggieTales movie in 2002, and The Pirates Who Don't Do Anything, a VeggieTales movie in 2008. The successes of the animations helped establish a franchise of related media, including music, stage productions, and video games. The series is distinguished as the most successful Christian children's franchise of all time, in 1999 and 2000, at the height of its popularity, the videos outsold every other kid's property at the time. It has sold over 16 million books, 7 million music CDs, and 235 million music streams. VeggieTales was created by Phil Vischer and Mike Naraki through the production company Big Idea Entertainment with an overall aim to convey Christian moral themes and teach biblical values and lessons for a child-based audience. Vischer developed the idea for VeggieTales in the early 1990s while testing animation software as a medium for children's videos. Due to limitations in the soft image creative environment at the time, Vischer opted to avoid the technical production hurdle of designing characters with arms, legs, hair, and clothes. The first animation model for VeggieTales was an anthropomorphic candy bar, further inspired derived from Vischer's wife, who suggested parents of the target audience might prefer a hero protagonist who promoted healthier eating habits. Vischer then began to design the characters based on fruits and vegetables. Fisher then recruited his friends to voice the cast of VeggieTales in the early episodes. Dan Anderson, Dad Asparagus, and Jim Poole, Scooter the Carrot, who collaborated with Fisher on dramas at their local church, were recruited for the cast. First offered in the direct-to-video market, the first release was the 30-minute video Where's God When I'm Scared in December 1993. Soft Image 3D was used to animate the characters for episodes until 1999 when it was replaced with the animation software Maya. In January 2002, Hit Entertainment sued Big Idea, claiming Big Idea abruptly walked away from a 1997 deal with Lyric Studios, which Hit acquired a year prior. The deal intended for Hit to manufacture and distribute VeggieTales merchandise. Having had no written contract with either Lyric or Hit, Big Idea arranged a production deal with Warner Home Video, triggering the suit. In April 2003, a jury in Texas ruled Big Idea must pay $11 million to Hit, a decision which was overturned on appeal in 2005. Due to bankruptcy concerns from the jury decision, Vischer lost control over VeggieTales in 2004. The VeggieTales cartoons are teleplays performed by various vegetables and fruit that live together on the same kitchen countertop. Some of these characters have real names and take on various roles in the teleplays. Most of these regular characters, such as Larry, Bob, Junior Asparagus, Archibald Asparagus, Pa Grape, Jimmy, and Jerry, were established in the earliest videos. So there's television series then that were produced of VeggieTales, starting with VeggieTales on TV from 2006 to 2009. 
For three seasons, VeggieTales on TV ran on NBC, Telemundo, and Ion TV as part of the Cubo Children's Programming Block from 2006 to 2009. The television show altered the general format by opening at the front gate of Bob the Tomato's house. Bob, Larry the Cucumber, and other veggie characters then sing the show's theme song as they hop to Bob's front door. The theme song ends with the character making a random comment, such as Pa Grape commenting on Archibald's new sweater. Bob and Larry then wait for the mailman, Jimmy Gord, to deliver a letter. When Jimmy comes, he happily sings his mail song, which Bob and Larry both find tedious. Similar to the opening countertop sequence of the VeggieTales videos, Bob and Larry read the letter and the cast tries to decide how to solve the viewer's problem through one of three regular segments. Archibald reads a story from his big book of oddities, Pa Grape shows an old film, or Mr. Lunt appears with his stick puppet, Paco the Storytelling Mule, and tells a story. The result always proves disastrous and the story or film makes no sense. Bob and Larry then intervene with the story from a VeggieTales video. The show ends with Bob and Larry wrapping things up by reiterating the story's lesson and Bob thanking the kids for coming over to his house. NBC episodes end with characters bidding the audience a simple goodbye. According to the LA Times, VeggieTales has been very successful for NBC in a Saturday morning time slot that has traditionally been difficult for the networks. NBC saw its biggest ratings jump in Saturday morning children's programming since 2003. As a result, ratings on NBC's Saturday morning program had grown from an average Nielsen rating of a half between 2003 and 2005 to an average Nielsen rating of 0.95 between 2006 and 2008, with an average of 430,000 children watching each weekend. After NBC aired the first few episodes of the first season in September 2006, the company chose to edit the episodes to remove religious messages, including references to God. The original sign-off message, Remember kids, God made you special and he loves you very much, was replaced by Thanks for coming to my house today, kids. See you next week. Goodbye. The changes were made at the request of the Network Standards and Practices Department to enforce compliance with the network policies regarding religious neutrality. The original dialogue remained viewable by users of the network's closed caption feature. The conservative watch group Parents Television Council complained to NBC about the changes. L. Brent Basel, president of the group, complained of the network ripping the heart and soul out of a successful product. His argument was that if NBC was concerned about references to God, they should not have taken the series. Basel stated this just documents the disconnect between Hollywood and the real world. The response from Response from NBC stated that editing now conforms to the network's broadcast standards, which direct producers not to advocate any one religious point of view. NBC spokeswoman Rebecca Marks said, Our goal is to reach as broad an audience as possible with these positive messages while being careful not to advocate any one religious point of view. 
Vischer said he was not aware the religious content would be removed and said he would have declined to sign the contract had he known. I would have declined partly because I knew a lot of fans would feel like it was a sellout or it was done for money, he said. Vischer said he understood NBC's wish to remain religiously neutral. VeggieTales is religious, NBC is not. I want to focus people more on isn't it cool that Bob and Larry are on television. Then there was In the House and City from 2014 to 2017. A new series, Veggie Tales in the House, premiered on Netflix as an original series in Thanksgiving 2014. The series lead is Doug Ten Naple and features a theme song by independent studio musician and frequent Ten, Na Ten Naple collaborator Terry Scott Taylor. The deal between current VeggieTales owner DreamWorks and Netflix calls for the release of 75 episodes over a three-year period, with each episode featuring two 11-minute stories. Mike Naraki and Phil Vischer continue to voice their characters, but the rest of the original video cast has been replaced by veteran voice actors Tress McNeil and Rob Paulson. The series is an expansion of the kitchen countertop segments of the original videos to include a full city which the characters live in. Bob and Larry live as roommates in an apartment west of the kitchen counter. Several stories revolve around a general store built into the bottom right corner of the kitchen counter which is run by Pa Grape. The cast from the original videos remains the same aside from the absence of Mr. Nezer who has been replaced by a similar looking character named Ichabezer. Themes in each episode relate to biblical principles such as forgiveness, compassion, and generosity. In 2017, Veggie Tales in the House ended and a new series was developed to continue Veggie Tales on Netflix. The series was called Veggie Tales in the City, which aired from 2019 and is still going strong. In March 2019, it was announced that the Trinity Broadcasting Network was to inherit the broadcasting rights to air a new VeggieTales series on their networks. Fisher confirmed via Twitter he and Naraki were to return to Big Idea Entertainment as full-time staff to work on the series tentatively titled The VeggieTales Show. On April 24, 2019, the VeggieTales official YouTube channel published a video called VeggieTales is Back, brand new VeggieTales show trailer, which provided info about the VeggieTales show. The show started airing on TBN in 2019. This version of the show focuses on the VeggieTales characters acting and on shows of Bible stories in a theater. The series brought back Mr. Nezer as the owner of the theater in which the show takes place. The first episode was a Christmas special called The Best Christmas Day Gift. The pre this premiered on TBN Christmas Day 2019 and was distributed on DVD and digital by Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. And there's an article from LifewayResearch.com written by Aaron Wilson about 25 interesting things you never knew about VeggieTales. It may come as a shock to anyone who's ever explored the Christian subculture of America, but at one time there really never, ever, ever, ever was a show like VeggieTales. 
That time was before December 21st, 1993, the day when Where's God When I'm Scared first appeared on VHS and Christian bookstores. On that day, not even VeggieTales creator Phil Vischer could imagine how the series would go on to impact kids and families for the next quarter of a century. When the 25-year anniversary of VeggieTales was happening, there were 25 interesting things you may not have known about the show that redefined a genre and impacted millions of Christians. Chocolate Tales The kitchen counter where VeggieTales takes place could easily have resembled the fictional world of Candyland. When creating his lead character, Vischer began by experimenting with a talking candy bar. His wife, however, told him moms would be mad if the show caused kids to fall in love with candy. He moved on to a cucumber and the show, for, and the show forever took a more health-conscious turn. Look, Ma, no hands. Vischer wasn't necessarily partial to vegetables. He simply needed character models that were easy to animate in the early days of computer-generated graphics. Since tomatoes and gourds didn't require animating arms, legs, or hair like human-animal characters would, the show waltzed into the produce aisle. Creative Role Models Vischer's two heroes growing up were Walt Disney and Jim Henson. Their influence in storytelling, humor, and creativity can be seen throughout the series. Playing with the Big Boys Vischer temporarily surpassed his heroes in at least one way. His autobiography, Vischer, says his company Big Idea was at one time the largest animation studio between the coasts, overshadowing Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks. Crazy Early Success According to Vischer, VeggieTales became the most successful direct-to-video series in history. Between 1996 and 1999, Big Idea grew revenue by 3,300% from $1.3 million to $44 million. But as you'll learn further down, that success would later end with the company in bankruptcy. A treasure trove of hidden content. Many VeggieTales DVDs had secret Easter eggs hidden around various menu icons, including one where the French peas attempt to make a bootleg copy of the show's first feature movie, Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. Virtual VeggieTales VeggieTales released in 1993, the same year as Jurassic Park, and when production began on the first Toy Story film. Both the latter movies played an important role in introducing audiences to the capabilities of computer animation. In a world where Christian media is usually criticized for being behind the times, VeggieTales was ahead of its day in exploring new technology for kids' programming. Not as much Bible as you remember. VeggieTales is commonly described a show where vegetables tell Bible stories to kids but in actuality, only a small percentage of the videos consisted of retold Bible stories. Instead, the overwhelming majority of shows involved spoofs of popular literary tales or well-known pop culture stories such as Indiana Jones, Minnesota Cuke, or Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Beans. Each episode did introduce kids to a Bible verse that supported the episode's theme. Old Testament Emphasis of the VeggieTales show that featured actual stories from scripture, the canonical representation skewed heavily in favor of the Old Testament. 
The breakdown goes Genesis, featured in three videos, Exodus in two, Joshua in one, Judges in one, Esther in one, Samuel in one, Daniel in two, Jonah in one, and Luke in one. Turns out there's a reason why the New Testament was used so sparingly. Mom's Rules Vischer's mom, who has a Ph.D. in Christian education, gave him some initial rules about creating veggie tales. They included, one, you will not portray Jesus as a vegetable, and two, try not to imply that vegetables can have redemptive relationships with God. The first rule is why there are almost no veggie tale episodes focused on New Testament stories. The second rule is why Bob speaks in the second person when he ends episodes with always remember God made you not us special and he loves you very much. Streamed vegetables. VeggieTales legacy includes almost 50 direct to home videos and two full length feature films. But in 2015, the brand moved to Netflix. The streaming giant has since created two original series based on the characters. No plans for future direct-to-home VeggieTales videos have been announced. This really marks the end of the series' traditional means of distribution. 25 years makes for a very generous expiration date for vegetables on VHS and DVD. Big idea equals big problems. Predating the move to Netflix, the veggies found themselves in hot water for a number of reasons that included a poor growth strategy, draining cash flow, heavy debt, hefty legal fees, and a lost lawsuit. In September 2003, the company filed for bankruptcy and was sold to Classic Media LLC, the same company that owns Lassie, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Veggie Tales Drops the Bible, God after the bankruptcy sale, Classic Media, a secular company, made a deal with NBC to bring VeggieTales cartoons into their Saturday morning lineup. But NBC required the shows be removed of scripture passages and certain references to God in order to reach as broad an audience as possible with these positive messages, while being careful not to advocate any one religious point of view. Bob's signature sign-off line, God made you special and he loves you very much, was replaced with, thanks for coming over to my house, kids. See you next week. Vischer's Regret It can be argued that VeggieTales episodes were driven more by biblical values than they were by actual biblical stories. Fisher lamented this, is an, this in an interview. When I lost VeggieTales and Big Idea... One of my first responses when my head finally stopped spinning was, wait a minute, did I just spend 10 years persuading kids to behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity, he said. I can't just tell kids to behave like Christians. I have to teach them the tenets of the faith. This led directly to one of Vischer's next projects, Getting Back to the Bible. After leaving Big Idea... Vischer created Buck Denver Asks What's in the Bible, a 13-episode program to lead kids through the Bible's grand narrator from Genesis to Revelation. The program uses puppets, animation, songs, and voice acting, skills that were perfected during Vischer's time working on VeggieTales. In his new series, Vischer was finally able to explore New Testament stories that were unavailable for VeggieTales because of his promise to his mom not to depict the Messiah as a vegetable. Hope he's waterproof. 
QWERTY, the animated computer who introduced kids to featured Bible verses, got his name from the first six letters on a standard computer keyboard. His first design was based on an IBM 386. In 2010, QWERTY upgraded to an Apple iMac with a voice chip and webcam. Who keeps a desktop computer on their kitchen counter anyway? No onions, please. Mr. Lunt, excuse me, the eyeless mustache character with the strange love for cheeseburgers is often mistaken as an onion by fans of the show. Vischer has gone on record, however, identifying the wisecracking series antagonist as a decorative gourd. Say, isn't that? VeggieTales included some notable voice acting guests such as Amy Grant, Wayne Brady, Jackie Velasquez, Duck Commander C. Robertson, Robertson, Matthew West, Kelly Pickler, and Terry Crews. Monkeying around with silly songs. Andrew Peterson, whose song Is He Worthy became a favorite in church services in Easter, wrote some of the silly songs for VeggieTales with his friend Randall Goodgame. A favorite is the silly song Monkey, which helps Bob learn the difference between monkeys and apes. Well, kind of. Multiple Personalities Vischer voiced almost half of the VeggieTales characters, including Bob the Tomato, Archibald Asparagus, Mr. Lunt, Pa Grape, Jimmy Gord, Mr. Nezer, and Felipe P., Fisher calls Bob his inner Mr. Rogers, but says Archibald is most like his real personality. Because I'm Bat Bob. Before Larry Boy, Fisher had planned to give Bob a superhero identity called Bat Bob. Larry eventually donned the cowl and became a fan favorite, spawning a line of toys and video games based on the suction cup wearing hero. Tommy and Cookie. In his autobiography, Vischer says if VeggieTales had been a typical Christian show, Bob and Larry would have been called Tommy the Tomato and Kooky Cucumber. Vischer said he wasn't aiming to make a typical show and wanted to avoid alliteration. He sought more common names for his main characters. Bob was named after Vischer's stepdad, an electrician, and, by Vischer's estimate, a regular Joe. Fourteen Years in the Making In a 1992 reel created to attract potential distributors, a clip called VeggieTales Promo Take 38, Archibald Asparagus states that Bob and Larry want to make a Christian TV show. VeggieTales was actually released, however, as a home video series for most of its existence. It wasn't until 2006, 14 years after the initial promo was made, that an actual VeggieTales TV series was created, fulfilling Bob's lifelong dream. The Dangers of Living the Dream The Rise and Fall of Big Idea caused Vischer to recognize that dreams, even dreams of ministry influence, can be a source of idolatry. After the bankruptcy, he said in an interview with Ryzen magazine, God taught me that I had made the work I was doing for him more important than my relationship with him. I was worshiping my dream and not my creator. And vegetable cannibalism. And lastly, and perhaps the most disturbing event to ever happen in VeggieTales history, Larry's hunger gets the best of him. In the first episode of the Netflix series, VeggieTales in the City, Larry is served a sandwich that contains, you guessed it, sliced tomatoes. Bob was unavailable for comment. 
So I guess the, I said that what surprised me about Veggie Tales was that I never realized, and maybe this comes from not really seeing it, but I was surprised to find out that it was actually supposed to be based on, I'm not going to say religion or Christianity, or Christianity, but that it was, it was indeed a Christian based show and, um, focused a lot on scriptures from the Bible. Like it had that kind of focus in each episode. So I was really actually surprised to know that because if I'm being honest, I totally thought the whole fact of VeggieTales was just yes, to encourage kids to want to eat healthier and to eat their vegetables and probably teaching about healthy eating. I never knew that the whole concept of anything about religion was, you know, inquired into that so that was really something that really surprised me um about veggie tales but you know all in all i agree with the way nbc wanted to kind of alter it because if you focus it on just one religion you know and i'm not just saying this because i'm like i don't really believe in religion i'm more of a spiritual person because Religion divides and, you know, that's probably, you really have to think about that when you are taking on a show and that concept that if you're going to focus on Christianity, any other religion or, you know, denomination, what have you, is going to feel like their views weren't taken into perspective. And so I actually really can appreciate MBA's aspect, or uh, MBA, oh my gosh. I'm sorry, I'm kind of looking at the TV here and uh, there's stuff about basketball, so that's how MBA came into my mind. Um, I can appreciate NBC's um, wanting to cut out, you know, the words like God because many people can take that into offense and you just want to keep it as neutral as possible. So I really have um, a lot of respect for that. And it's also just really interesting that not only, you know, if it is religious based, it teaches kids good moral values, you know, on top of it being vegetables and hopefully wanting to encourage better eating habits as well. So next we're going to move on to another show I had never heard of, but it kind of gave me, it kind of gives me Bob the Builder vibes in a way. Um, the Disney Channel version of it, if you will. Higley Town Heroes was on from 2004 to 2008, and it's an American CGI animated children's television series produced by Wild Brain that aired on the Playhouse Disney block on Disney Channel in the United States. The show's characters are shaped like Russian nesting dolls. In the show, children Wayne, Yubi, Twinkle, and Kip learn all about the important jobs that people do in Higley Town. The theme song of the show here in Higleytown is performed by They Might Be Giants, which was also released on their second children's album, Here Come the ABCs. After its series finale originally aired on January 7, 2008, reruns aired on Playhouse Disney until March 29, 2009. Disney Junior then aired it in reruns from March 2012 until November 2018. 
The Higglytown Heroes TV series was made using Elias Maya, which was used to design models and textures for the Higglytown Heroes characters, and Photoshop, which was used to create the 2D backgrounds and 2D props. The lyrics to the first Hero song were written by Kent Redeker, one of the show's executive producers. The song was composed and produced by Mark Harrison, the show's senior songwriter. The characters of Higglytown Heroes are Yubi, a male nesting doll with blonde hair, blue eyes, and fair skin with freckles. He wears a red shirt with yellow stripes, a matching bottom part, and a dark red collar. His pants are also dark brown with silver buttons. Wayne is a male nesting doll with dark brown hair, tan skin, and green eyes. He wears glasses with black edges, a light green shirt, and a matching dark green overalls. He is Twinkle's older brother. Twinkle is a female nesting doll with dark brown tied dark brown hair tied in puffy pigtails and blue eyes. She wears a pink headband with pink stars and a small pink bow, a light pink shirt with glitter, and a pink duck hatching from an egg in the middle and magenta skirt with purple stripes. She is Wayne's younger sister. Kip is a male nesting doll who wears a light blue t-shirt with a blue robot, a dark blue coat, and blue matching pants, which look like jeans. He also has blue hair, brown eyes, and fair skin. Fran is a female nesting doll who is who is a squirrel with red fur and is the pet of Kip. She speaks with an upper Midwest accent. Pizza Guy is a male nesting doll who is the local pizza delivery man as well as cl- a close friend of the Higley kids. And Miss Fern is a female nesting doll who serves as a teacher. So there's an article written by Kristen Johnson from StreetDirectory.com, and it is TV Critic Reviews Higglytown Heroes. As aunt of a preschooler and an aspiring voiceover actress, I knew all those hours of watching Bugs Bunny would come in handy. I know all the kids' shows as well as every kid's DVD out there. My TV Critic column will be a regular family fair guide to kids' TV. In my opinion, there's no better way celebrities can recoup their outrageous salaries than entertaining and sometimes educating kids. And they might be giants get the cooler than Elvis vote for singing the theme song to one of Playhouse Disney's hits, Higglytown Heroes. For those of you not familiar with all things Higgly, an adjective used as much as Smurfy but not think Higgles as a verb, the series centers on a small town and four tots named Yubi, Kip, and siblings Wayne and Twinkle. Think South Park with better art and no foul mouths. The strongest strongest language is aw, pickles, usually uttered by Twinkle, pinker than Trista Rune Sutter, after her fanciful ideas for solving the kids' dilemmas get gently punctured by Fran, a friendly squirrel voiced by Edie McClurg. In each two-episode, half-hour show, the Higley kids experience, experience common, innocent childhood events such as finding a caterpillar, hosting a television party for the Happy Harry Higley Monster Primetime Special, losing a tooth, Kip's grandpa locked in the bathroom, or caring for an unhappy bird. 
The kids try to solve their problems, guided by Fran, who is the voice of reason, helped by their loving families and the ever-enthusiastic, oddly bill-and-teddish pizza guy, plus someone special. Then comes the inevitable song. Someone special, who could it be? This job's, this job's too big for you and me. We need some help, but never fear, oh, it looks like a job for a Higley Town hero. A Higley Town hero. Some of the heroes are natural choices, especially after September 11th, policewoman, firefighter, etc. But how many of us think of sanitation workers, electricians, plumbers, gardeners, mail carriers, and farmers as heroes, or a telephone operator? Although the heroes have celebrity voices, the Higley kids discover that the real stars all around them are the people who solve problems every day. Some of the dilemmas get a little ridiculous from an adult perspective. For example, when Kip climbs a tree to save a beloved neighborhood cat and her kittens, his friends help him. Why, when he gets stuck, can't they help him get back down? Ahem, was the last time you, you tripped and panicked. You need help in your own life every day without thinking about it. The beauty of Higley Town Heroes is that it celebrates working together, having fun together, and the Higley kids, as well as their families, never take for granted the heroes in their lives. The electrician, voiced by Lance Bass, gets invited to share in the Higley Monsters TV party after repairing the cir circuitry for Kip's house. The firefighter, voiced by Donald Faison, who gets Kip out of the tree, shares in a birthday party for the neighborhood cat. How many of us go out of our way to thank the people who make our lives easier? Sometimes we forget to see them as people with needs and feelings. We even forget to see our own families as heroes. Kip's grandmama, voiced, voiced by Betty White, knits the kids' sweaters. Kit's mom acts like the soul of a 50s domesticity, but gets rewarded when Kip and his friends make her a get-well card. Wayne's mom shows the kids a caterpillar and drives them to the beach. Interestingly, Higley families aren't always nucle nuclear families, something Disney portrays as normal without calling attention to it. Kip's family is the closest, with twin sisters, a baby sister, a mom and a dad, who operates a hot dog cart, and two grandparents who either live in Kip's large house or visit constantly. Twinkle and Wayne's mom seems to be a single parent, although are, are, although all are African American, no one has screamed racism yet, and Yubi is apparently being raised by a southern-assented Aunt Millie and Uncle Zooter, with visits from his southern-assented Grandpop, who is a farmer. In many ways, Higley Town is idolized. No one really seems to worry about jobs, money, or status. People go to the library, and a librarian is a Higley Town hero. The kids work real hard and take responsibility by thinking up ways to help themselves and their families. And in each episode, there are little moral lessons and advice. Take care of your pets. Don't use too much electricity. Make someone smile to show the kids how they can grow up to be. Higley Town Heroes. Cynics and naysayers will deride this as Kitty Pablum. I call it a refreshing dose of reality and a tribute to the heroes all around us. The Disney animators are Higley Town Heroes for creating this show. And you know, if that is the case, I, I would agree. Especially like 
showing kids responsibility, you know, doing things because I feel so many kids are just so glued to the TV and, you know, their electronics and having screen time. And that is like a big no-no. It is okay when it's done as a reward or, you know, for good behavior. But I think it's really important for, you know, not only for kids to show respect to their elders, but to also, you know, do you know, contributing to like the household chores, like helping with dishes or maybe helping clean, like keeping their room clean or cleaning up their toys, you know, being respectful to their siblings, um, you know, obeying mom and dad, like having, you know, respecting the bedtime routine and like brushing their teeth and taking a bath. You know, it's those things that show like, that show kids that how to respectively do that is what I really like to see in a TV show. Because when kids are watching that, you know, they tend to emulate what they see on TV. And so if they are seeing these good positive role models, then they're going to follow that and it's going to be all around better for society. So I'm really glad that there is a show such as Higglytown Heroes that can conquer those issues. So next up, I have the Backyardigans. And I've never seen the Backyardigans, but I'll tell you what really surprised me. That this ultimately went up against the Wiggles in the very first round and knocked the Wiggles out. And I truly thought that the Wiggles would win against the Backyardigans. I mean, I have no idea how good of a show the Backyardigans is, but I, growing up, I was obsessed with the Wiggles. Okay, so, and I just kind of figured, especially because the Wiggles have been around for, god damn, longer than me. Like, let's put it that way. The Wiggles have been around for 30 years, and they're still going strong, albeit though they have changed. You know, we will talk about the Wiggles next, but... I mean, I just was shocked that the Backyardigans beat the Wiggles. I didn't think that that would happen. I didn't expect the Wiggles to make it to the finals, but I definitely thought it'd come pretty damn close. And so I was shocked. Um, But the Backyardigans is a computer animated musical children's TV series created by Janice Burgess. The series was written and recorded at Nickelodeon Animation Studios. It centers on five animal neighbors who imagine themselves on fantastic adventures in their backyard. Each episode is set to a different musical genre and features four songs composed by Evan Lurie with lyrics by McPaul Smith. The Bigyardigans' adventures span many different genres and settings. The show's writers took inspiration from action-adventure movies, and many episodes are parodies of movies. Nickelodeon called the show a homegrown Nick Jr. property, as the whole creative team had been part of the Nick Jr. family for years. Creator Janice Burgess had worked as Nick Jr.'s production executive since the mid-90s. The Backyardigans originated as a live-action pilot episode titled Me and My Friends, filmed at Nickelodeon Studios, Florida in 1998. 
The characters were played by full-body puppets on an indoor stage. The pilot was rejected by Nickelodeon, and Burgess decided to rework the concept into an animated series. In 2002, a second pilot was animated at Nickelodeon Digital in New York. The second pilot was successful, and the series entered production. The show ran for four seasons, totaling 80 episodes. The first three seasons aired on Nickelodeon on weekday mornings. Nickelodeon only aired eight of the fourth season's 20 episodes. The remaining episodes aired exclusively on the separate Nick Jr. channel. In 2009, the show was planned to continue beyond the fourth season. However, in 2010, the series creator Janice Burgess decided to move on to a different series, Nickelodeon's revival of Winx Club. Burgess worked as a creative director and writer for Winx Club before eventually retiring from Nickelodeon in 2014. The Backyardigans was critically acclaimed. Many critics felt that The Backyardigans was superior to Nickelodeon's other preschool shows because its writing was sophisticated and enjoyable for older viewers. The New York Times and Common Sense Media commended the show for including frequent nods to an older audience, such as references to action-adventure franchises. The quality of the show's music was also praised by critics, and the show received eight Daytime Emmy Award nominations for its music. The show centers around a group of five animal neighbors, Uniqua, Pablo, Tyrone, Tasha, and Austin. They share a large backyard between their houses. In each episode, they meet in the backyard and imagine themselves on a fantastical adventure. Their adventures span a variety of different genres and settings. Many episodes involve visiting different parts of the world, traveling back or forward in time, and using magic or supernatural powers. The characters give themselves different jobs or roles depending on the episode's imaginary setting, such as detectives, knights, or scientists. From the second season onward, many episodes are parodies of action-adventure films such as James Bond, Star Trek, Indiana Jones, and Ghostbusters. The openings and endings of the episodes follow a similar pattern. The stories begin with the characters in the backyard, introducing themselves and explaining the scenario they are about to imagine. When the Backyardigans finish their adventure, the fantasy sequence fades, restoring the original backyard setting. The characters sing a closing song, then walk inside their houses for a snack and close the door. As the episode ends, at least one character reopens the door and shouts a phrase related to the adventure. The show follows the format of a stage musical. Each episode is set to a different genre of music and features four songs. The characters sing and dance to the songs with original choreography. The song and dance routines are often used to introduce a character's imaginary role, further the plot, or explain a problem. In addition to singing songs in a new genre each episode, the show's background music changes to match, scoring all of the backyard against actions. Some of the main characters from the Backyardigans... Each of the five characters on the show has two voice actors, one for speaking and the other for singing. Live action dancers first perform the dancing on the show, and their movements are later transported to animation. The choreographer, Beth Bogbush, described the process. What we do is film the live footage in the studio, send that off, and they do a Lisa, a Lisa and then they send it to the animators. The animators watch them are pretty precise. 
what we filmed for that day is pretty close to what you see in the character. Uniqua is a pink-spotted character who is curious, self-confident, and adventurous. She likes to tell jokes and make her friends laugh. The series uses the name Uniqua for both the character and her species. She wears pink polka-dotted overalls and has a pair of swirled antenna on top of her head. She usually imagines herself having roles that require brains and courage, such as a scientist or pirate captain. Creator Janice Burgess describes Uniqua as the child she wishes she was like as a child. She is the only main character to appear in every episode. Her speaking voices are LaShawn Tina Jeffries, singing voices Jemiah Simone Nash, and Avion Baker. The dancer is Hattie Mae Williams. Pablo is a blue penguin with a yellow beak who is high, strong, frenetic, and tends to overreact. He wears a blue bow tie and a propeller beanie. Due to his energy and impetuousness, he often goes into a panic attack when he faces an obstacle, running around in circles and telling everyone not to worry until someone gets his attention by calling his name three times. Pablo's panic attacks become less prominent after season one, though in the later episode, The Flipper, his propensity for getting overexcited is the main plot point. Pablo does not appear one time, and his speaking voice is Zach Tyler Eisen and Jake Goldberg, Sean Curley, and the dancers Tasha Cooper, Jonathan Sandler, Stephen Napelski, Jacob Weimer, and Paul Flanagan. Tyrone is a red-haired orange moose who is laid back and cool-headed. He wears a red and blue striped shirt. He is best friends with Pablo, and he is almost the complete opposite of Pablo in terms of personality with his calm and easygoing character. Tyrone is known for his sarcastic comments, one of them being that certainly was convenient. At the end of most episodes, he says, that was an excellent adventure, don't you think? Uh... Tyrone somehow manages to put his hands in his pockets. He is voiced by Reginald Davis, Jordan Coleman, and Christopher Grant Jr. Tasha is a strong-willed hippo who is rational, skeptical, and highly motivated to get her own way. Tasha wears red Mary Jane shoes and an orange dress with a flower pattern. She's the most serious of the backyardigans, though she can be just as easygoing as the others from time to time. Her catchphrase is, oh, for goodness sakes, Nickelodeon describes Tasha as deceptively sweet and tough as nails. She is voiced by Naily Ray and Gianna Bruzzies. And Austin is a shy but fun-loving purple kangaroo. In season one, he is reserved and soft-spoken due to recently moving into the neighborhood. In later episodes, Austin becomes more outgoing and is revealed to be smart and imaginative. Austin rarely appears in the spotlight, but takes the role of the lead character in several episodes. Beth Bogush described him as the one pulling up the rear. He's kind of a get-along guy. He is voiced by Jonah Bobo. The Backyardigans received eight Daytime Emmy Award nominations, and Janice Burgess won the 2008 Emmy for Outstanding Special Class Animated Program. In a 2016 article for the Chicago Tribune, drama critic Chris Jones called The Backyardigans a fabulously inventive TV show. DVD Talk's John Crichton gave the show a hearty recommendation, citing its enjoyable and varied music score, the character voices, both spoken and singing, and the oppressive visual presentation. Slate named the Backyardigans episode The Swamp Creature one of the best episodes of children's television. 
Critics noted that the series had broad appeal to older viewers due to its high-quality music and focus on character-driven, non-educational stories. Susan Stewart of the New York Times said it's hard to say whether The Backyardigans is a fantasy for children or for their parents, commending the show's animation and storytelling. Common Sense Media's Emily Ashby wrote, It's not always easy to find a show you like as much as your youngsters do, but The Backyardigans definitely has the potential to fit that bill. Journalist Virginia Heffernan wrote, With each episode devoted not just to separate quests, but also to a different musical genre, the show blows you away with its artistic exactitude. So next we're going to move on to The Wiggles. And growing up, I feel like The Wiggles have been around longer than I have, okay? They've been, they're still actively going, albeit there's been some changes within the band throughout the years. But they've been going since 1991, So, and I was born in 1992, so the Wiggles are older than me. I, I grew up loving the Wiggles, you know, the whole fruit salad is yummy, yummy, and the cold spaghetti, the hot potato, the mashed banana. I, I'm trying to think, like, what other songs I know from them. Uh, so many, I just don't even remember them all. But Dorothy the Dinosaur and uh, that creepy looking pirate, he always scared me. Um, But yeah, I mean, (laughs) I remember, I think I was maybe seven or eight. And I sent an email to the Wiggles for my birthday and they emailed me back and I was like super excited. So, I mean, it's just kind of incredible that it's getting to the point where... You know, we grew up with the Wiggles and now our kids are growing up with them. And I don't know. I don't really see them stopping anytime soon. Like, especially just, I feel like they're just going to keep adding on new people as time goes on. And, you know, they're just going to keep going. And, you know, their songs are, even after all these years, I mean, I know my nephew liked the Wiggles for a time. Um, And after all these years, every time I see, like, a plate of fruit, I think of fruit salad. Yummy, yummy. Every time. Like, it never fails. It comes to my head every single time. And every time I eat spaghetti, and, like, it's... Okay, say I'm eating leftover spaghetti, right? You put it in the microwave, and it's just not quite hot enough. You get some cold spots cold spaghetti, cold spaghetti. It's like every single time. So (laughs) it's like those songs, they stick with you for forever. And so the Wiggles are an Australian children's music group formed in Sydney, New South Wales in 1991. Since 2013, the group members have been Anthony Field, Lachlan Gillespie, Simon Price, and Emma Watkins. The original members were Field, Philip Wiltshire, Murray Cook, Greg Page, and Jeff Fat. Wiltshire left the group after their first album. Page retired in 2006 due to health issues and was replaced by understudy Sam Morin, but returned in 2012, replacing Morin. At the end of 2012, Page, Cook, and Fat retired and were replaced by Gillespie, Price, and Watkins. Cook and Fat retained their shareholding in the group, and all three continued to have input into its creative and production aspects. 
Field and Fat were members of the Australian pop band The Cockroaches in the 1980s, and Cook was a member of several bands before meeting Field and Page at Macquarie University, where they were studying to become preschool teachers. In 1991, Field was inspired to create an album of children's music based upon concepts of early childhood education, and he enlisted Cook, Page, and Fat to assist him. They began touring to promote the album and became so successful they quit their teaching jobs to perform full-time. The group augmented their act with animal characters, Dorothy the Dinosaur, Henry the Octopus, and Wags the Dog, as well as the character Captain Feathersword. That was his name, Captain Feathersword, played by Paul Paddock since 1993. They traveled with a small group of dancers, which later grew into a larger troupe. The group's DVDs, CDs, and television programs have been produced independently since their inception. Their high point came in the early 2000s after they broke into the American market. The group was formally consolidated in 2005. They were listed at the top of Business Review Weekly's top-earning Australian entertainers four years in a row and earned <clears throat> American dollars $45 million in 2009. In 2011, the worldwide was recession hit the Wiggles as it had done for many Australian entertainers. They earned $28 million, but they still appeared second on BRW's list that year. The Wiggles have enjoyed almost universal approval throughout their history, and their music has been played in preschools all over the world. They have earned multiple platinum, double platinum, and multi-platinum records, have sold 23 million DVDs and 7 million CDs, and have performed on average to 1 million people per year. The Wiggles music has also received over 1 billion streams and over 2 billion views on YouTube. The band has earned multiple Australasian Performing Rights Association and Australian Recording Industry Association Music Awards, and they have been inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame. The Wiggles released a career-spanning compilation album in March 2021 titled We're All Fruit Salad, The Wiggles' Greatest Hits. Starting out in 1988 to 1991, Anthony Field and Jeff Fat were members of the Cockroaches, a Sydney pop band known for their good time R&B material and several singles recorded by independent labels during the 80s. In 1988, Field's infant niece, who was the daughter of Cockroaches founder and band member Paul Field, died of SIDS, causing the group to disband. Anthony Fields enrolled at Macquarie University in Sydney to complete his degree in early childhood education and later stated that his niece's death ultimately led to the formation of the Wiggles. Murray Cook, also a mature age student, was the guitarist in the pub rock band Bang Shang-A-Lang. That's really the name, Bang Shang-A-Lang. Ooh, I like saying that. Bang Shang-A-Lang before enrolling at Macquarie. Greg Page, who had been a roadie for and sang with the cockroaches during their final years, had enrolled in Macquarie to study early childhood education on Field's recommendation. Field, Cook, and Page were among approximately 10 men in a program with 200 students. In 1991, while still a student, Phil became motivated to use concepts in the field of early childhood education to record an album of music for children. 
The album was dedicated to Field's niece. A song he wrote for the cockroaches, Get Ready to Wiggle, inspired the band's name because they thought that wiggling described the way children dance. Like university assignment, they produced a folder of essays that explained the educational value of each song on the album. They needed a keyboardist to bolster the rock and roll feel of the project, so Field asked his old bandmate Fat for his assistance in what they thought would be a temporary project. The group received songwriting help from John Field, Anthony's brother and former bandmate, and from Philip Wiltshire, who was working with the Early Childhood Music Program at Macquarie. After contributing to their first album, hosting the group's first recording sessions in his Sydney home, and appearing in a couple of the group's first videos, Wiltshire left the group and went into classical music. The group reworked a few cockroaches tunes to better fit the genre of children's music. For example, the cockroaches song Hot Tamale, written by John Field, was changed to Hot Potato. Anthony Field gave copies of their album to his young students to test out the effect of the group's music on children. One mother returned it the next day because her child would not stop listening to it. To promote their first album, the Wiggles filmed two music videos with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and created a self-produced 40-minute long video version. Finances were limited, so there was no post-production editing of the video project. They used Fields, nieces, and nephews as additional casts and hired the band's girlfriends to perform in character costumes. Cook's wife made their first costumes. They used two cameras and visually checked the performance of each song. That way, according to Paul Field, it took them less time to complete a 40-minute video than it took other production companies to complete a three-minute music video. Heading into 1993 to 2004 with their Australian and international success. Through the rest of the 90s, the Wiggles maintained a busy recording and touring schedule, becoming, as Field reported, and despite his strong dislike of touring, the hardest working touring act in the country. They released multiple albums and home videos and, depending upon the word of mouth of their audience, performed to increasingly large audiences in Australia and New Zealand, despite having to reintroduce themselves to a new audience of children every three years. They produced a new album and video each year and toured to promote them. By late 1993, they grew bigger than anyone had thought, and hundreds attended their concerts. By 1995, they had set records for music and video sales. In 1997, 20th Century Fox produced a feature-length film, The Wiggles Movie, which I loved which became the fifth highest grossing Australian film of 1998, earning over a million and a half dollars. In spite of their early success in Australia, Paul Field reported that the band was unable to produce a television program on the ABC where they felt they would receive the most exposure to the preschool market. Around 96 to 97, they filmed a television pilot for the ABC, but as the Sydney Morning Herald reported in 2002, the project never got off the ground due to irreconcilable artistic differences. 
As a result, the Wiggles financed the TV program of 13 episodes themselves and sold it to the Disney Channel in Australia and to Channel 7, where it became a hit. By 1998, the Wiggles were ready to move on to international markets despite its members' health issues, especially Fields. The reaction of producers in the UK was less positive than the group would have liked, although they were eventually able to make inroads there, but their real success came in the US. Disney arranged for them to perform at Disneyland in California, where they were discovered by Lyric Studios, the producer of Barney and Friends. Both Anthony and Paul Field reported that Lyric, despite their initial misgivings about whether American audiences would accept the band's Australian accents, came to understand the Wiggles and their goals, and after successful tests with American children, enthusiastically promoted them. The Wiggles used many of the same promotion techniques in the U.S. that they had used in Australia and chose to keep their concerts simple and maintain the same values that were successful in Australia. The Wiggles performed during the intermission of Barney Live stage shows, which the New York Times likened to getting the warm-up slot for the Stones in the preschool entertainment world. In 2000, when video sales took off in the U.S., Lyric began to distribute Wiggles videos and advertise them by including Wiggles shorts as trailers in the Barney videos, which, as Anthony Field stated, pushed us over the edge. At first, the group's videos were distributed in boutique stores such as F.A.O. Schwarz and Zany Brainy and online. According to Paul Field, they entered the mass media market when their videos became top sellers at Amazon and their first two videos, Yummy Yummy and Wiggle Time, landed in the top ten at Amazon. Stores such as Walmart began to take notice and began to sell Wiggles videos. The band released nine DVDs in the next three years to keep up with the demand. As they had done in Australia, the Wiggles chose to tour but start off small with simple props and sets instead of hiring a touring company. Some of their first appearances in America were blockbuster video parking lots to small audiences, as Fat said, a dozen people. They performed at small venues such as church halls and 500-seat theaters in Brooklyn and New Jersey and upgraded to larger venues as ticket sales increased. Anthony Field reported that one week they would perform to 8,000 in Sydney and to 20 people the following week at a parking lot in a small town in the U.S. One time they performed for a dozen people at the Mall of America in Minnesota, but half of the audience were hired by Lyric. Eventually, they moved to larger arenas such as the Beacon Theater and Madison Square Garden. They performed at SeaWorld in Orlando, Florida for six weeks. Their audiences began to increase, and they toured Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, the U.S., and the U.K. The Wiggles' popularity in the U.S. increased in the shell-shocked weeks after the terrorist attacks on New York City in 2001, when the group performed there, even when other acts canceled their tours, a decision that earned them loyalty and respect. According to Cook, the press proclaimed that they were braver than many Australian sports teams that had canceled their appearances. Paul Field stated, New York has really embraced them. It was kind of a watershed. Strong sales of the Wiggles videos eventually caught the attention of the Disney Channel in the U.S., who was impressed by their strong pro-social message. In January 2002, Disney began showing Wiggles video clips between their programs. 
By June of that year, the popularity of the clips prompted the Disney Channel to add both seasons of the Wiggle series to their schedule and showed full episodes multiple times per day. Field reported that despite their modest production values, the shows were popular with preschoolers. Beginning in 2002, the Wiggles filmed four seasons worth of shows exclusively with the ABC. The network called them the most successful property that the ABC has represented in the preschool genre. By the end of 2002, according to Field, we knew we were involved in something extraordinary in the U.S., their concert schedule in North America doubled seemingly overnight. They began performing up to 520 shows a year all over the world. They also began to produce other stage shows in places the Wiggles themselves were unable to visit in Australia, the UK, and US that featured their characters, a host, and a few dancers. The age called this time period, about the mid-2000s, the group's high point. They earned 45 million Australian dollars a year in revenues and had several licensing deals and an international distribution agreement with Disney. Despite their success, founding member Anthony Field almost left the group in 2004, shortly after his marriage and the birth of his first child, due to his serious medical issues, which were worsened by the Wiggles demanding tour schedule. After meeting chiropractor James Stockson in Chicago, Field improved his health to the point that he was able to continue. He began to hire teams of chiropractors for himself and his fellow band members and cast members in every city they performed, which he credited with making it possible for them to fulfill their touring requirements. And as of 2013, we have the New Wiggles era. The new iteration of the Wiggles, with Field and its new members, began touring in early 2013. Cook became the group's road manager in mid-2013. Price reported that since the Wiggles' audience changed every few years, the transition to the new group was easier for their young audience than it was for their parents. One of their challenges, especially for their early tours, was learning the Wiggles' catalog of 1,400 songs. In early 2016, Price described the Wiggles' competitive culture of fitness, especially among the male cast, by citing the group's grueling performance schedule, saying, sometimes it feels like it's an extreme sport. After a seven-year absence from Australian television, they filmed a new show called Ready Steady Wiggle in their spare time at their studio in Sydney between tours and on the road. Watkins, who had a filmmaking degree, played an important role in its production. The series was picked up by the online streaming service Hulu in 2015. Anthony Field admitted that they found it hard going until they returned to television. Merchandise featuring the original group outsold the new group's products and they failed to sell out their concerts. In 2014, the Wiggles doubled their ticket sales from the year before and played in sold-out venues all over Australia and the world for 250,000 fans. Hyde Park in Sydney had to be closed on Australia Day because fans filled it to see the group perform. Their album Apples and Bananas won the 2014 ARIA Award for Best Children's Album. 
By 2015, Paul Field called the new group an amazing success. By that time, they had produced eight CDs and DVDs and three new television series. Field reported that the new group went through the same process as the original group in terms of audience and acceptance and benchmarks of success. They performed to sell out audiences throughout Australia, had high sales of their DVDs and CDs, and won an ARIA in 2014. According to Kathy McCabe of News Corp Australia, it took 18 months for the new group to be accepted by their audience. McCabe credited their success to Watkins, who became the group's standout member. According to Field, an American journalist called her young fans who came to concerts dressed in yellow and wearing bows like her, the mini Emma Army. She was so popular, she starred in her own TV show called Emma without the other Wiggles in 2015. Field called her an aspirational role model for their young audience and reported that she had increased their fan base of girls. Field stated that the audience emulated her fashion choices, opening up new merchandising possibilities for the group. The band continued to sell out concerts throughout 2015. Also in 2015, it was announced that the Wiggles would produce their second feature film. Comedian Ben Elton was slated to write the script and co-write the soundtrack. In early 2015, Gillespie and Watkins revealed that they had been dating for two years. They announced their engagement in May 2015. They were air- married on the 9th of April 2016 at Hopewood House in Bowral in New South Wales, Australia. In August 2018, Gillespie and Watkins announced their separation. The Wiggles celebrated their 25th anniversary with a performance by the new members published as a free podcast on iTunes in front of the Apple Store in Sydney in January 2016. In February, the original group members were to perform a charity concert for their fans over the age of 18 who were part of their first audiences at the DYRSL Club in Sydney. The band, also a 25th anniversary Best Of album, containing songs from across the Wiggles' entire career, recorded by the new lineup. The album was certified with platinum sales status in Australia. In February 2016, the Wiggles released the new studio album Wiggletown, which was named Best Children's Album at the 2016 ARIA Awards. In 2017, the Wiggles collaborated with renowned Australian rock singer Jimmy Barnes on a children's album entitled Ach A The Gnu. The album won the Best Children's Album Award at that year's 2017 ARIA Awards. The original Wiggles performed reunion charity concerts on the 17th and 18th of January in 2020 to raise funds for the Australian bushfires with proceeds going to the Australian Red Cross and the Wires Wildlife Rescue Service. On stage on the 17th of January, Greg Page suffered a cardiac arrest. He stopped breathing and required CPR and three jolts from a defibrillator. The Wiggles Twitter account posted that Paige had undergone a medical procedure and was recovering in the hospital. The Wiggles announced their 30th anniversary celebrations in January 2021, beginning with the release of a new single titled We're All Fruit Salad, which features cameos from James Harkness, Jawan M. Jackson, Robert Rakit, Victor Valdez, Taylor Simone Jackson, Paul Knobloch, and Lou Diamond Phillips. 
The band also announced a forthcoming Greatest Hits album called Raw Fruit Salad, The Wiggles' Greatest Hits, which was scheduled for release on March 5th. The new collection encompassed 40 tracks from across the group's entire history. On February 26, 2021, the groups were announced as the act performing on Triple J's Like A Version segment the following week after a successful campaign by breakfast host Bryson Ebony and listeners to get them to perform as part of the segment. On the 5th of March, 2021, the current lineup of Anthony Emma Leishy and Simon were joined by original members Murray and Jeff, where they performed the original song were All Fruit Salad and a cover of Tame Impala's Elephant, which they interspersed with Fruit Salad. A little bit about the educational theories that the Wiggles throw into their music and shows. And here's a little statement from Anthony Field speaking about the state of children's music in the early 90s back in 2012. Where was the fun? Where were the references to the simple things that are so dominant in a child's life? Favorite books, colors, dancing, playing, nap time. And what's wrong with kids getting up and grooving, squealing, screaming, and laughing through a performance? I wanted to explore alternate ways to write and perform for young children to ensure the music was for them, not just for the musician. Nothing complicated, snide, or condescending. And from Murray Cook in 2010, we have a license to be silly, and a lot of what we do is about joy. They believed in empowering children by practices such as greeting their audience members with hello everyone instead of hello boys and girls because as Paul Field has explained, the second greeting unnecessarily separates children and has undertones of condescension. Kathleen Warren, the group's former professor at Macquarie University, believed that the group's practice of asking their audience to wake up Jeff when Fat pretended to fall asleep was very much in keeping with the way they work with children. Warren stated that asking children to interrupt Fat's slumber helped them build confidence and to feel more in control of their lives. Fat was the only original member of the Wiggles without a background in early childhood education. He explained that was the reason falling asleep was chosen as his gimmick and that it was a way of getting me involved in the shows without actually having to do anything. Paul Field reported that children in the Wiggles audience felt great excitement and were disappointed if not given the opportunity to help Jeff in this way. Anthony Field, who called it a simple audience participation and interaction gag we've done since the start of the group, claimed that it endeared fat to their audiences. The group's members took turns falling asleep in the early days of the group, but it became Fat's gimmick because it was a perfect fit. When Fat retired, Gillespie took over the task of falling asleep. And I have a few facts from BuzzFeed. Anthony the Blue Wiggle actually created the iconic group. The Wiggles originally had five members and they didn't wear their iconic bright colored skivvies. The fifth member, Philip Wiltshire, left because he didn't enjoy performing as much as he did composing music. Forbes stated that in 2012, the Wiggles generated $28.2 million. That's a lot of fruit salads. At the start of the Wiggles' journey, Anthony played not only the Blue Wiggle, but also Captain Feathersword and Wags the Dog. 
Paul Paddock became Captain Feather's ward full-time when Anthony had to go to the hospital for a hernia operation. Both Paul and Hugh Jackman auditioned for the role of Gaston in their performing arts school's adaptation of Beauty and the Beast. Dorothy the Dinosaur was originally voiced by Murray the Red Wiggle. The Wiggles have sold over 30 million albums and DVDs since they started in 1991. Kylie Minogue was made an honorary pink wiggle in 2009. Anthony, Greg, and Murray met while studying early childhood education at Macquarie University. Anthony and Jeff were in a pub rock band called the Cockroaches in the 1980s. Many celebrities are fans of the Wiggles, with people like Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Martin, and Nicole Ritchie attending their concerts. Anthony can play a slew of instruments, including the tin whistle, didgeridoo, and bagpipes. The Wiggles are the world's most popular children's entertainment group, and Greg owns the fourth biggest collection of Elvis Presley memorabilia in the world. And so I think in some way we have all been impacted by the Wiggles in one way or another. Whether we grew up watching them, or our children watch them, or you've got nieces, nephews, cousins, siblings. I think all of us have enjoyed a little bit of fruit salad in our lives because of the Wiggles. So next up, we've got the Muppet Babies. Now, this was very popular in the mid to early, the mid 80s to the early 90s. And they also did a reboot back in 2018, and it is still popular and going strong. Now, I remember the original Muppet Babies watching reruns, um, and I owned quite a few of, you know, I think I had like bedding and stuff. A lot of it was my sister's. Um, but as far as the new one, I never even knew about it. So I'm going to have to like check it out and see if it's uh, anything true to the original. Um, so I will first talk about and touch base on the original Muppet series. And then I will talk about the Muppet Babies reboot. So the original was from 1984 to 1991. And Jim Henson's Muppet Babies, commonly known by the shortened title Muppet Babies, is an American animated television series that aired from September 15, 1984 to November 2, 1991 on CBS. The show portrays childhood versions of the Muppets living together in a nursery under the care of a human woman identified only as Nanny. The whereabouts of their parents are never addressed, who appears in almost every episode but her face is never visible. Only the baby's view of her pink skirt, purple sweater, and distinctive green and white striped socks is shown. The idea of presenting the Muppets as children first appeared in a dream sequence in The Muppets Take Manhattan, 1984, released two months before Muppet Babies debuted, in which Miss Piggy imagined what it would be like if she and Kermit the Frog had grown up together. The Muppet Babies live in a large nursery watched over by Nanny, who is seen only from the shoulders down. The baby's imaginary games transition from the nursery into scenes that become real to the babies, such as finding themselves aboard a pirate ship or in the land of Oz. 
Often, these fantasies are filled with stock footage scenes or live-action clips from popular movies such as Star Wars, Ghostbusters, and Indiana Jones. Each episode contains a related musical number. When the pretend game becomes too perilous, or when an interruption occurs, often in the form of Nanny checking in or the imaginary game straying too far from its original premise, the scene dissolves and they find themselves in the nursery once more. The central idea episode is the power of imagination. Sometimes the babies use their imagination to solve a problem. When Nanny's newspaper is accidentally ruined, the babies write their own newspaper to replace it, but occasionally their imaginations run away with them, overhearing Nanny's phone call to the garbage collector to help her decide which arm share to donate to charity leads the babies to fear that one of them, which was thought to be Fozzie, is going to be thrown away. Other frequent themes involve the babies coming up with new ways to play with old toys, imagining what life will be like when they are adults, or facing common childhood firsts such as a visit to the dentist or a new addition to the family. Nanny is the voice of reason, congratulating them on their creativity or soothing their fears. The series stars Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Scooter, Skeeter, Rolf the Dog, and Gonzo as the main Muppets. Dr. Bunsen, Honeydew, and Beaker made regular appearances, as did Camilla in the form of Gonzo's stuffed baby chick. In the final two seasons, Bean Bunny and Statler and Waldorf began making regular appearances. Several Muppets made guest appearances, including Janice as an older preteen and Kermit's nephew Robin, a young tadpole. Scooter's twin sister Skeeter was unique to the Muppet Babies animated series, having no live-action puppet incarnation. The reason Skeeter never appeared as an adult Muppet served as the basis of a sketch on the adult comedy Robot Chicken. In 1984, The Muppets Take Manhattan, the third full-length Muppet film, debuted. The film included a fantasy sequence in which Miss Piggy imagined what growing up with Kermit would have been like. While Piggy sang, baby versions of Rolf, Fozzie, Scooter, and Gonzo acted as backup singers. The live-action sequence was so popular that the Jim Henson Company turned the idea into a half-hour cartoon program. In order for 107 episodes to be produced, Henson and Marvel hired two companies, the Japanese-based Toei Animation for seasons 1 through 3 and 5 episodes of season 4, and the Korean-based Acom Productions for episodes 6 of season 4 through season 7, both of which also animated G.I. Joe and the Transformers for Marvel, Marvel Productions and Sumbo Productions. Muppet Babies proved highly popular and ran on CBS from 1984 to 1991, a total of seven seasons. At the height of its popularity, it ran in two or three episode blocks. Even after the conclusion of the series, it had remained so popular that CBS continued to air reruns of the series until the fall of 1992. For a brief run in the second season, the pro program became Muppets, Babies, and Monsters, and a second half hour was dedicated to a new show called Jim Henson's Little Muppet Monsters. 
This show featured live-action Muppets and cartoons starring the adult Muppet characters. The program lasted three weeks before Jim Henson pulled the plug, despite 18 episodes having been made. The show then reverted to an hour of Muppet Babies, but a portion of the Little Muppet Monsters themes could still be heard in the show's end credits for the remainder of its run. Muppet Babies later expanded to 90 minutes after CBS pulled Garbage Pail Kids before it even aired due to controversy. It is noted for starting the trend of relaunching popular cartoon characters as younger versions of themselves. This trend can be seen in numerous TV series such as A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, The Flintstone Kids, Baby Felix, Tiny Toon Adventures. The main characters actually are the successors of the Looney Tunes, the latter themselves and their instructors, Tom and Jerry Kids, and Jungle Cubs, based on characters from Walt Disney's animated film The Jungle Book, as well as merchandise items such as Baby Snoopy, Baby Betty Boop, Disney Babies, Baby Hello Kitty, Care Bear Cubs, Baby Strawberry Shortcake, and Baby Garfield. In recent years, Baby Looney Tunes, Sesame Beginnings, Baby Mario from Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, and Little Astro Boy continued the concept. The show was a critical success during its time on the air. The show won four consecutive daytime Emmys for Outstanding Animated Program, 1985 to 1988, and won a Humanitas Prize for Children's Animation in 1985. Muppet Babies was voted top cartoon of the childhood days by the Irvin Hall Newspaper's weekly review of the Pennsylvania State University in 2007. Hank Saroyan served as executive in charge of series, voice director, story editor, song producer, and composer. And now, the Muppet Babies reboot, which has been on since 2018 and is still presently airing, is an American computer animated television series featuring toddler versions of the Muppets characters that began airing on Disney Junior and Disney Channel on March 23, 2018 and is aimed at a target audience of children from ages, ages 3 to 8. It is a reboot of the original 84 to 91 animated series of the same name. The show retains several of the younger incarnations of the classic Muppet characters seen in the previous series, including Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, the Great Gonzo, and Animal. The series also sees the second appearance of Nanny, now known as Miss Nanny, short for Nansette, and the first appearance of a new Muppet Babies member named Summer Penguin. The show details Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Summer Penguin, Fozzie Bear, Animal, and the Great Gonzo and a cast of characters using their imaginations. Kermit the Frog is voiced by Matt Danner and is a level-headed and good-hearted frog who enjoys acting out adventure and making music with his banjo. However, he can get flustered rather easily, usually by the antics of those around him. He is also the leader of the Muppet Babies. Miss Piggy is voiced by Melanie Harrison. She's a beautiful and glamorous yet temperamental and self-centered pig who considers herself a star and harbors a crush on Kermit. She mostly speaks in a high-pitched voice but would at times greatly deepen when she gets passionate or angry. She is best friends with Summer. Fozzie Bear is voiced by Eric Bauza and he's a fun-loving and goofy bear who aspires to be a comedian. He is also best friends with Kermit.
Gonzo is voiced by Ben Diskin, and he's a highly eccentric and unpredictable whatever who loves to do stunts and anything that can be considered weird. Animal is voiced by D. Bradley Baker and is a frenzied monster who likes to play the drums. Summer is voiced by Jessica DeSico and is a good-hearted and sweet-natured penguin from the South Pole who loves to make art. She is best friends with Piggy. Miss Nanny is voiced by Jenny Slate and she is the caretaker of the Muppet Babies and the proprietor of her daycare who is only seen from the shoulders down. The pattern on her stockings changes to reflect relevant elements in the episode plot. Miss Nanny won a gold medal in a gymnastics discipline at the Sportathon. Other Muppets include Camilla the Chicken, Mr. Sattler and Mr. Waldorf, Rizzo the Rat, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, Beaker, Dr. Teeth, Rolf the Dog, Sweetums the Swedish Chef, Robin the Frog, Scooter, Skeeter, Sam Eagle, Jill the Frog, and other characters include Priscilla, Beep, Carlos, Mr. Manny, and Rosie. Unlike the previous series, the update is produced using computer-generated animation and features two 11-minute stories per episode. The series is aimed at children between the ages of 4 and 7. Tom Warburton, best known for creating Cartoon Network's code name Kids Next Door, is the executive producer and Eric Shaw, former writer on Nickelodeon SpongeBob SquarePants, is the story editor and co-producer. The show is a co-production between Disney Junior, Oddbot Animation, Snowball Studios, and The Muppet Studios. On October 23, 2020, it was reported that original Muppet Babies writer Jeffrey Scott would sue the Walt Disney Company for using ideas that originated in the 1984 series without permission or credit. Scott also stated that he presented ideas and concepts to Disney in 2016 that were used without his permission. On January 27, 2021, Disney filed a motion to dismiss it. Disney argues that Scott had nothing to back up his claims and that he did not claim ownership to the copyright of Muppet Babies as an intellectual property when he filed for bankruptcy in 2003. The case was dismissed on March 31, 2021. And from Mental Floss... Before prequels were a thing, Jim Henson's Muppet Babies imagined a world in which the felt-covered characters of Henson's Muppets franchise, Kermit, Miss Piggy, Animal, and Fozzie Bear among them, met up as children in a nursery. Left to their own devices, the animated cast led a rich fantasy life while in diapers. For more on the 1984-1991 show, including why it's so hard to find anywhere except YouTube, let's keep reading. Frank Oz didn't really want Muppet Babies. The idea to infantilize the Muppets came from Michael Frith, a longtime collaborator of Jim Henson's in the early 1980s. 
Frith believed that regressing the characters could allow them to impart moral or educational messages to children already familiar with them, but Frank Oz, a Muppets performer, Miss Piggy, and film director argued that the Muppets needed to maintain their subversive edge. It was Henson who found a compromise, suggesting that younger versions of the characters appear in a dream sequence for 1984's feature film, The Muppets Take Manhattan. The response to the scene was overwhelmingly positive, and Henson soon teamed up with Marvel Productions and CBS for an animated series that began airing in September 1984. Skeeter was the result of a gender imbalance on Muppet Babies. Most of the principal Muppet Babies cast was made up of recognizable characters, including Kermit, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Rolf, Gonzo, Animal, Bunsen, and Scooter. But Frith, Henson, and producers Bob Richardson and Hank Soroyan decided that the babies were skewing a little too male. Aside from Piggy and their caretaker Nanny, there were no female characters. To balance the scales, they introduced Skeeter, Scooter's twin sister, a brainy problem solver. Skeeter has made only fleeting and sporadic appearances in the Muppet franchise since, leading to speculation she might be caught up in rights issues between CBS and the Jim Henson Company, which was purchased by Disney in 2004. Fortunately, the somewhat murky situation appears to be at least partially resolved. It was recently reported Skeeter will resurface in the new computer animated iteration of Muppet Babies, which is currently airing on Disney Junior and has been renewed for a fourth season. The Muppet Babies live action segments were a result of budgetary constraints. A hallmark of Muppet Babies is when the cast find themselves thrust into scenes from famous films, a Walter Mitty-esque bit of a fantasy fulfillment that blends live-action sequences with animation. According to Frith, devoting a portion of each episode to clips wasn't entirely a creative choice. By inserting clips, producers could save money on animation. It was also easy for Henson to secure the rights to popular films like Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark because he was friends with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. While some believe those clips are the reason the show isn't available to stream, sifting through the legal entanglement of re-airing the segments might prove costly. That's never been confirmed. Muppet Babies never explained what the Muppets were doing in that nursery. Given time to reflect, it seems odd that the Muppet cast would find themselves in a nursery without being supervised by their own parents. Speaking with the Detroit Free Press in 1987, Michael Frith said that the situation was purposely left vague. I really appreciate the fact that they don't ask, Frith said of his kid viewers. Is this a daycare center? Is this a foster child home? The more we talked about it, the more we felt it should just exist. The kids accept it. There was an offshoot of Muppet Babies called Muppet Monsters, and it never aired in full. Following the success of Muppet Babies, CBS and Jim Henson decided to expand on the Muppets' potential as Saturday morning stars by creating a 90-minute block in 1985 titled Muppets Babies and Monsters. Muppet Babies often aired consecutive half-hour installments for an hour total.
In addition to regular Muppet Babies episodes, the program featured another half hour of Little Muppet Monsters, which featured Muppets of new Muppet Monster characters named Tug, Molly, and Boo. The three appeared in a framing device that introduced animated segments of adult Muppets. Only three episodes aired out of the 15 produced, reportedly due to both Henson and CBS being unhappy with the finished product and Muppet Baby standing strongly on its own. The remaining episodes have yet to see the light of day. And Muppet Babies was turned into a live stage show. To further incite their juvenile audience and monotonize their popularity, the Muppet Babies franchise eventually wound up live and on stage. Muppet Babies Live debuted in 1986 and featured performers in oversized costumes dancing and acting to a pre-recorded track. In one skit, the cast appeared in a Snow White homage. In another, Rolf became Rolfgang I'm a goddess, Mozart, and played the piano. The arena show toured the country. Hank Saroyan, one of the animated show's producers, wrote the stage show. The performer for Baby Piggy, Elizabeth Feigles, also appeared in a live production of Dirty Dancing. The show ran through 1990. And there you have it about the Muppet Babies. Of course, we all love the Muppets. You know, I've had the Muppet movies and even the Muppet show, even though it's the adults. I've had it on my watch list on Disney Plus since it's been added on there. And it's like, you know, I'm finally done with my peer support class now. So hopefully within the next like coming week or two, I can catch up on a lot of things and start catching back up on my TV show. So that will be um good and hopefully eventually I can get to watching some of the Muppets because I I actually enjoy the Muppets. I didn't so much when I was a kid but I enjoy it now more that I'm older. So we are down to our last two shows. Both of these are Nick Jr. and I feel like they're two of the best. One is a show, one isn't even really a show. It's more of a segment and we're going to start off with Ubi. Now, this is so weird. Ubi is like, if you've ever seen Ubi, he's a hand with googly eyes. And the hand acts as the puppet and talks. And it was probably the weirdest thing I ever saw, yet I was so fascinated by it. I loved watching it. Ubi was on from 2000 to 2005. And it's an American children's television series created by Josh Selig for Nickelodeon and its sister channel, Noggin. The show's concept is based on a training method used by puppeteers in which they use their hands and a pair of glass eyes instead of a full puppet. The main character is a bare hand puppet named Ubi. The show's first season was a series of two-minute shorts. For its second and third seasons, it became a long-form series with episodes lasting 13 minutes each. The show premiered in 2000, and the last new episode aired on February 11, 2005. Selig was a longtime writer and performer for Sesame Street, and he came up with the idea for Ubi while watching barehanded puppeteers audition for Sesame Street. The show was filmed at Kaufman Astoria Studios, where Sesame Street is also taped. All of the show's puppeteers were veteran Muppet performers. The main characters were played by Tim Lagasse, Stephanie Diabrazzo, Noel McNeil, and Taylor Bunch. 
The puppet's designs include glass eyes and accessories such as hats and hair pieces. The puppeteer's thumbs are used to represent mouth movement and their fingers flutter and clench to indicate emotions. The characters talk in simple sentences using only two to three words at a time. The show's ending credits feature a montage of families making and playing with their own bare hand Ubi puppets. Ubi was a breakout success for Noggin. It received positive reviews from critics with praise for the puppeteer's performances, the visual style, and the show's appeal toward multiple age groups. The Age reported that the show developed a strong cult following among older viewers, and Noelle McNeil has said that the show's fans range from amateur puppeteers to college-age stoners. The show received a variety of awards, including from the Television Academy and Parents' Choice. Ubi had a Nielsen rating of 2.35 among Noggin viewers by 2004, becoming the highest rated series ever to air on Noggin. It is the most widely distributed Noggin show, having aired in over 23 markets worldwide by 2005. A foreign adaptation titled Ubi Das Dasi premiered in 2012 and ran for 78 episodes, airing in the Middle East and countries across Asia. The show takes place in a quaint, old-fashioned neighborhood inhabited by hand puppets. It is shown from the perspective of a four-year-old named Ubi. The puppets often talk directly to the audience and encourage participatory viewing. The characters use basic vocabulary and they speak in simplified sentences that resemble the speech structure of a child just beginning to talk. For example, Uma, school, first day, is said in a place is said in a place of it's my first day of school. The prepositions and conjunctions are rarely used. The show is intended to help develop social skills, early literacy, and logical thinking. Ubi lives in a single-story house with his younger sister Uma and his grandfather Grampu. Ubi's best friend Kako lives across the street and often comes over to visit Ubi. Most episodes center around Ubi learning more about a simple concept like a new sport, a new place, or a holiday. Uma and Kako are the comic relief and they often misunderstand Ubi's discoveries or provide commentary on the episode's topic. The show is meant to mirror the stage of early childhood when everything in the world is new and incredible and when each revelation helps build a sense of mastery and self-confidence. In the second season, the episodes were extended and followed a format made up of three parts. The first part is a linear story featuring the puppets going on an adventure or making a new discovery. The second part is a set of brief interviews between the puppets and human families centering on the main story's topic. The last part is an interactive game, usually involving rhyming, guessing, or memory, where the viewers are encouraged to play along with the characters. When Ubi was renewed for a third season in 2004, game segments were dropped in favor of longer stories. Interviews remained an important part of the show, but instead of being shown after the story, these segments were shortened and played as transitions between scenes. Some of the main characters of Ubi include Ubi, voiced by Tim Lagasse, who is a four-year-old boy. He is curious and always willing to learn something new. Unlike the other characters, he is completely bare, a bare puppet aside from his eyes and wears no accessories or clothes. His eyes are brown in the short episodes and hazel in the long-form episodes. Ubi dreams of becoming a piano player and takes lessons from an elderly woman named Inka. 
He is very protective of his favorite toy, a red model car. He acts as a role model to his little sister, Uma, who often looks to him for guidance. Uma is voiced by Stephanie D'Abruzzo and is Ubi's three-year-old sister. She is shorter than Ubi and usually wears a barrette on her pinky finger. She loves singing, dancing, and pretending chickens are her favorite animal, and she will often talk about and imitate them, much to Grandpa's annoyance. She has a tendency to comically overreact to minor changes or inconveniences. Her catchphrases are nice and pretty. Because she is so young, she has trouble pronouncing long words. Kako is voiced by Noelle McNeil and is Ubi's excitable, confident, and slightly arrogant best friend. Kako generally has a playful attitude and often cracks jokes, but he can prove to be insightful and sincere whenever Ubi needs advice. He has green eyes and wears a red knit hat. His catchphrase is perfecto, the Spanish word for perfect. Unlike Ubi and Uma, Kako comes from a nuclear family. He lives with his parents, Mamu and Papu. Grandpa is voiced by Tyler Bunch and is Ubi and Uma's wise and sometimes rather unlucky grandfather who acts as their caregiver and mentor. His appearance is different from that of the kids. Four of his fingers are curled instead of ex being extended, making him look taller. His favorite pastimes are cooking and gardening. He develops a romantic relationship with Ubi's piano teacher, Inca, and throughout the series, his catchphrase is lovely. A few of the recurring characters are Inca, Agnes, Mrs. Johnson, Mamu and Papu, Maestru, Frida the Foot, Moppy, and Bella. Josh Selig was inspired to create the show after watching puppeteers perform with their bare hands on the set of Yulika Sezmakawa, the Polish adaptation of Sesame Street. Each puppeteer used their hand in a pair of ping pong balls in place of a puppet. This is a common technique among puppeteers in training as it helps them learn the basics of lip syncing and focusing the eyes of a puppet. Selig noted the amount of expression conveyed by the more skilled actor's hands and it gave him the idea for a series that showcased the raw emotion of barehanded puppetry. In 1999, Nickelodeon and Sesame Workshop created a cable channel called Noggin. At its launch, the channel mainly aired reruns from Sesame Workshop's library, so both companies started to seek pitches for original shows. Selig had, a re had recently left Sesame Street when he was given the opportunity to propose his own show to Noggin. He pitched Ubi to them under the working title People, which he wanted to name the main character. He decided to rename the show Ubi after he found out that People was al already trademarked by an Italian brand of jeans. The new name was meant to mirror the character's eyeballs with two O's. Selig's pitch was successful and Ubi entered production with funding from Nickelodeon. For the first season, Noggin ordered a collection of about 50 interstitials, which lasted one to two minutes each and would play during commercial breaks. The season was made as an experiment to see whether or not Selig wanted to continue his own production studio, Little Airplane Productions. Of the season, he said, I set up a shop to produce that series, so we just signed a one-year lease. It's really an experiment for us, and after the first year, we found that we loved having a company. The first season of Shorts was filmed in 99 and started airing in mid-2000 on both Noggin and Nickelodeon. 
Ubi was instrumental in growing the Noggin Channel's viewership. In 2004, Noggin reported that the three shows, Ubi, Miffy and Friends, and Connie the Cow, increased the channel's average daily viewership by 55% over the year before. The average number of viewers watching Ubi increased by 43% during the same time. Noggin also reported that Ubi had grown in ratings in each quarter of 2004, up 8% from first to second, up 22% from second to third, and up 10% from third to fourth. The steady increase in ratings was reported by multi-channel news author Mike Reynolds, who attributed Noggin's popularity to its breakout original series, Ubi. The show's growing audience was what led Noggin to order the third season. The premiere of the Uma Preschool episode on the 6th of September 2004 posted a 2.35 Nielsen rating among the preschool age group, becoming the highest rated premiere of a Noggin series to that date. In December 2004, Noggin published a press release with its subtitle, Noggin's Ubi Delivers Highest Rated Original Premiere in Network's History. The strangest noggin show, hands down, pun intended, is Ubi, whose surprisingly appealing puppet characters are bare human hands with Google eyes, accessories, and homey little indoor and outdoor sets, said by Lynn Hefley of the Los Angeles Times. The puppeteers' performances and the show's approach to teaching fundamental life skills have been praised by critics. Common Sense Media reviewer Andrea Graham gave the show a five-star review, writing that when it comes to preschool programming, Ubi really breaks the mold, succeeding in its simplicity. Jan Spryer of the Dallas Morning News called Ubi the most imaginative and interesting preschooler program to debut in years, describing its characters as amazingly expressive hands that show anger, fear, happiness, even age and youth. The Coalition for Quality Children's Media wrote positively of Ubi, complimenting its concept and calling it thoroughly enjoyable and extremely well received. Diana Dawson of the Herald Journal liked the show's old-fashioned look, stating that in a world that too often forgets the innocent joy of playing kick the can and catching fireflies, there's something incredibly endearing about the bare-handed puppetry. DVD Talk's Holly Ordway called Ubi a clever way to encourage kids to be imaginative. Jamie Egan of Families.com commended the show's messages of inclusion and diversity, calling them invaluable and highlighting Frida the Foot and Keiko as standout characters. Ryan Ball of Animation Magazine described the show as an offbeat new entry to Noggin's lineup, adding that the fact that all the characters are played by hands just adds to the quirkiness. Some critics have commended the show for its widespread appeal. In an interview with the New York Times, Tan Aishim said that the show's quirky appeal extended far beyond Noggin's target audience. The simplicity is really understandable by my two-year-old, but my ten-year-old really giggles at Ubi. Andrew Dalton of The Stir stated that he was a fan of the show himself, adding that Ubi is just happy to be simple and gleeful and that actually makes it more appealing to sit and watch as a grown-up. The San Diego Union Tribune, Jane Clifford, felt that it could be enjoyed by viewers of all ages, remarking that if as a kid you ever drew eyes or a mouth on your hand and then talked to a friend, you'll relate to this show. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette named Umi the best cable premiere of April 2003, reporting, I've seen every blessed minute of each general audience premiere. They are good, but another new show outreaches the rest, Ubi. In a 2018 interview, Noel McNeil recounted, some of our biggest fans became college kids coming back from parties who were just like really stoned and would just sit and watch Ubi. 
So why was Ubi cancelled? Noggin wanted to order more episodes of Ubi, but Josh Selig started working on another show for Nickelodeon, Wonder Pets. He insisted that he should only focus on one show at a time, and he decided to stop production on Ubi to work full-time on Wonder Pets. And moving on to our last one, we have Face. And I loved Face. He was popular on Nick Jr. from 1994 to 2004. He wasn't an actual show, but he was like his own segment, introducing each show before and after, and some of the characters would join him, and he had some of the like funniest little things that he would do, like singing songs or like trying to play like sports and it was just he was so cute and fun i loved him so face was nick jr's mascot from september 1994 up to september 2004 when piper replaced face as the new host from 2004 up to 2007 he would often sing songs and announce what tv show was coming on next on occasion he would even interact with the character from nick jr Okay, so a Nick Jr. show or a short, usually from the one he's announcing, such as Blue and Periwinkle from Blue's Clues, the titular character from Little Bill, Bob from Bob the Builder, and even Philomena Fly from What's the Buzz with the Philomena Fly. His signature phrase was not a sentence, but was actually his imitation trumpet noises, which he often made after mentioning the programming block's name, Toot Toot Toot! Sometimes misspelled as burr, burr, burr on a subtitle caption and by fans, usually followed by a giggle. He was also used in the UK until 2004, Germany, Australia until 2006, Mexico as Cara, and France as Visage in the UK from 95 until 2004. He was voiced by David Holt in an Australia from 1998 until 2006. He was voiced by Charlie Adler. Face's last day on Nick Jr. aired on Sunday, September 12, 2004, alongside Marie Sendak's Little Bear. After that, they showed a preview for Piper Possum, followed by the final Nick Jr. bumper and Nickelodeon Sunday schedule. Face would continue to appear on Nick Jr. block in Australia until 2006. In 2004, Face was replaced by Piper Possum as the Nick Jr. mascot. Before then, starting in September 2003, Face was redesigned with a new mouth, new eyes, new voice, and eyebrows. The redesign was not well received, and they returned to his old design shortly after. He is the only Nick Jr. mascot to exist on the block for more than three years and actually still appears on a few of the Nick Jr. websites games. He also made a few appearances on a special New Year's theme broadcast of the 90s or all that with, Sticky, with Stick Stickly on December 31, 2011. He also attempted to find the Easter Bunny during Easter 2016. Despite being one of the most well-known mascots of Nick Jr., some children, particularly those with autism, were scared of him growing up. Sometimes, especially after his removal, similar to that of DQ's commercial mascot from 2003 to 2011, a mouth, and this might have been the case of the triggering dreams during the night. 
The same conditions may also apply to other applications, such as the song Stadium Rave, featured in the SpongeBob SquarePants episode Jellyfish Jam, as well as THX's Deep Note audio logo used before the beginning of a film on certified home media and even in a scene during the 2006 DreamWorks film Over the Hedge. Face, along with Stick Stickly, Return to the 90s or All That during New Year's Eve 2012. His appearances consisted of out-of-context clips that make him appear to be drunk or making off-collar comics. Example, yeah, grow a pair. After this, Face once again returned to Nick Splat in Easter 2016. This time, his appearance consisted of clips that make him appear to ask viewers if they see an Easter bunny. Face was like, I was more excited, like, especially if I knew, because I knew the schedule beforehand of Nick Jr., so if I knew a show that I didn't particularly care for was coming on, um, I was, like, excited just to see what Face was going to do. Um, and I loved all his different colors, and I don't know, Face was just one of my favorites, and I just, I knew he was a lot different from Ubi, but I just, I had to include Face into all of this. Like, he counted as a show to me, so I had to include him. So we are finally done with the Nick Jr. Disney Jr. shows. I know it took me a while. I'm very sorry. I'm working on the adult animation shows. So those episodes will be coming at you within the next couple days. We started new polls with sitcoms again. And I'm working on the next category. So just stay tuned for all of that. I'm working hard on it among other things in life. But, you know, let's enjoy it, you know. Even though I'm overwhelmed and busy, it's about enjoying it and having fun. And so that's why I do it. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Please be kind to one another. Bye.